Thank you very much for giving up your afternoon. Timing is everything. The timing of this event is reasonably prescient. Uh, hopefully the uh, discussion in here will be slightly less maudlin and gloomy than I imagine the discussion of the NEC was in here yesterday. Joey told me that uh, this was where Gordon Brown walked out of into his camera about 24 hours ago. Um, you know, if a week is a long time in politics, then perhaps a fortnight is bordering on a revolution. And this event is between Editorial Intelligence and Sky News to discuss really not just how the reputation of politics can be restored, but perhaps whether it can be. Um, we are being broadcast, not live, but will be broadcast by podcast after this event. So anything that we say, and indeed you say, will be immortalised and therefore on the record. Um, I am joined by really a very distinguished panel, all of whom are leaders in their field and could not really have been better chosen for this event. And then some of you in the audience are indeed people that we shall come to for comment. Um, on my immediate left is Steve Richards, the political editor of The Independent and the chief commentator, but also a broadcaster of great distinction. Um, on his left is our partner, representing our partner for this event, Joey Jones of Sky News. And uh, I particularly asked Joey to join the panel because those of you that follow politics as avidly as I do, um, have developed an entirely uh, platonic crush on Joey's reporting, both on his blog and on his broadcasting. And he's very... Uh, I loved the way he kept Chris Hune talking yesterday for what did seem like hours, very elegantly, before, while we were waiting for news of the speaker. Um, and uh, on my right is Jonathan Isabee, who is here in his capacity as Deputy Editor of Conservative Home, but it should be said that he only recently left the Daily Telegraph, and I think one has to pay a bit of homage to the Telegraph for breaking this incredible story and leading us to this point. And Jonathan has bought rather beautifully designed brochures for the forthcoming conference inside Cameron's Conservatives. I mean, I'm amazed you didn't say inside Cameron's Conservative government, but that was probably, you'll probably get onto that in your, uh, in your remarks. And then to the, to the right, um, although not necessarily politically by any means of Jonathan, is Norman Baker, who, although his official portfolio includes being the uh, Liberal Democrat spokesperson on transport, he is in many ways the embodiment of not just the Liberal Democrat voice, but one of Parliament's most vociferous voices for transparency in, in politics. And, uh, and of course, Helena Kennedy, Baroness Helena Kennedy QC, is here and she is going to speak to us first. She is, uh, her CV is so long and so illustrious, I will sum her up both by saying that I'm related to her by marriage in the interest of transparency. So it was something of a family three-line whip she was here. But also she is one of the great champions of constitutional reform and civil liberties in this country and it's, it's particularly relevant that she's here. So before we begin, just to say that um, the public are apparently consumed by this question more than they have been perhaps on any other political issue. The Sun today not only carries a cut-out uh, campaign for a general election, but their main columnist of the day, Jane Moore, argues that everybody is talking about how to get rid of bent politicians and therefore exhorts her readers to do just that by voting them out and setting up petitions. So a very extraordinary moment seems to be happening. 
Danny Finkelstein in the Times column today in, said that the question is whether MPs are up to the job of reform and whether the new speaker will reflect that. But it was an independent leader that picked up the point we're addressing now, which is that without the speaker's resignation we couldn't move forward, but is it enough to restore the reputation of politics? And so on that note, I'd like Helena to give us her thoughts. And I chose to call the lecture a constitutional moment. Um, and if that was a constitutional moment last week, then it's even more of a constitutional moment now. And, uh, and really it was to talk about um, what I see as being something happening that uh, should be seized. I think that, that we are actually facing a sense in which one world is seeping away and there's an opportunity for a very different kind of political world to be created. I mean, for me personally, I'm a Labour peer. I've always been a fairly uh, critical uh, uh, Labour peer um, and not always happy with my own party. But for me, it presents a moment for my own party of, of perhaps having a rethink about its sense and purpose and so on. But I, as a multitasker, um, want to hear talk about something else, which is the great constitutional moment, which is about our architecture of our democracy and something much bigger. And it's about all the parties and, uh, and the way in which we do democracy in this country. I think there are too many people within the political system who don't get it. They really do not understand the sense of rage that there is out there. And they really do think that a bit of tweaking of this system, uh, a little bit of, of, of change on allowances and, and so on, and the clearing out of one or two people will do it. Um, a sense in which you know, one or two of, uh, of the cabinet ministers might be moved around on the deck chairs, and that somehow will give a sense of change. Well, it's not going to satisfy uh, the, the, the serious anger that there is there. I, um, in the last few days, have spoken to people from all the different parties, and uh, uh, the, the answer to what's happening out there as people are starting to canvas is they're being met with rage on the doorstep. They are really being met with fury from people. And a lot of the steadfast folks who are usually older, um, who are prepared to go out and knock on doors, are saying, I don't want to do it because I feel that it's not, it's not my fault that this, is, uh, that this has been happening. And, uh, and so it's, it's a very interesting impact. For me, uh, it, it, is, it is a kind of echo of work that I feel I've been doing for now for nearly 20, well, over 20 years. Um, I was one of the first signatories of Charter 88. Um, uh, we, we sort of built up a campaign around a whole set of constitutional changes that we felt were necessary um, at the time of, uh, as, as we were getting to the sort of end of Thatcherism. And, uh, and, and thereafter, we had difficulty persuading Labour uh, to engage with that agenda, and it was only really um, in the run-up to the 97 election in the few years before that that it took on a sort of momentum. And part of it was a sense in which New Labour felt that they wanted to have a platform that was modern, that was about change and so on. And, uh, and so we were able to persuade, by that time I was the chair of Charter 88, and we persuaded them to, 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 to go down a constitutional change road. A lot of the changes, we can talk about them, but um, none of it was thorough enough. But I have to say that I'm very happy that one of them, which was a Freedom of Information Act, has led to this whole business of, uh, of our being able to see um, what has been going on in our name and with, the ta with taxpayers' money and has led to this uh, outrage about uh, abuse of public funds. And I, I think the next stage is now upon us. I chaired the power inquiry 
between 19, uh, 2006 2007 and went out and went around the country with a group of people it was they were not it was not the grand old uh, people who normally chair commissions and, and uh, um, people commissions um, I mean, apart from the old-timers like myself and Ferdinand Mount, the commission was, was young, it was vibrant, it was people who were not necessarily in political parties. And it was a very interesting experience to go around the country, to go to, to town halls, to go to community centres, to go to sports clubs, to go to schools and colleges, and just to talk to people about, do you vote? Why don't you vote? Why do, what, what, what's the problem? What do you feel about your politics? And people, far from being apathetic, which was what we were being told by politicians, that it's all because they're too comfortable, they're doing well, they're happy with the political system, they're happy with Labour and government, or they're happy with uh, um, what's on offer, and, uh, and that wasn't what we heard. People were actually saying that they were very unhappy about their voices not being heard, about there was no point in belonging to a political party because there was no way in which your ideas fed through into that party. There was a way in which everything was stage managed. There was a way in which people felt that uh, you know you would promise the earth before an election and it wasn't delivered thereafter. Um, manifestos were bland, so that you couldn't, or were so enormous that you couldn't get make sense of what really were the key issues that were, were before an electorate. And they also felt very, very strongly that people didn't seem to be as passionate about uh, uh, um, representing or making a, a sort of better society. Um, they felt that uh, politics between the parties were much the same, that it had all become vanilla flavoured. And they also felt that people, um, that too many people were career politicians and were, were they, got, they had a sense, even then, that somehow, um, uh, you know, there was too much graft, there was too much people being interested in leaving cabinet jobs and going straight into um, fancy places in the city or working for, you know, in, in, uh, being on corporate boards and the like. And I'm afraid our politicians are fed into that. We can talk about the examples from Alan Milburn going into the private sector of the NHS through to David Blunkett taking up a, 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 um, share options and so on with a company that did DNA testing. It's not acceptable when you've just come out of a department that has introduced an expansion of the use of DNA and the whole business in which DNA will be for the future of policy a very key uh, expansion area. So it's really, that sort of stuff is not good, and we can't expect those people to have moral authority when they're talking about our politics. So there is a sense out there, I think, of something much more than just anger about this, and it's our moment to seize for constitutional change. And I think that we have to talk about this as being about bread and butter issues, because actually if your framework isn't right, you aren't going to be able to deliver the bread and butter stuff. So um, I very much go back to the things that were, have always been key for me. I want to see a written constitution. I don't think that this old gentleman's club stuff works anymore where we're all honourable folk. I think people um, need to know what the rules of the game are, but it mustn't be the people who are playing the game who get to decide what the rules are. It has to be that the people, the people who are... Uh, uh, um, the people of this nation, they have to somehow or other be engaged in what kind of, uh, of par parliament we want. They're not going to want to pay for the funding of political parties, and the only way that we can persuade people of actually putting out more money for the, their democracy and paying for a better democracy will be if we shrink the size of our parliament, which I actually think is much more effective and efficient anyway. There should be fewer MPs. There are far fewer people in the House of Lords. Currently, there are 700 people in the House of Lords, and I'm sure that the spotlight is going to turn onto the House of Lords shortly on ways in which there's finagling of uh, expenses and stuff there too. And one of the worst things in the House of Lords is not about um, 
the money. It costs actually comparatively little. It's about the fact that people there, and particularly whoever's in government, and it will be the same when the Conservatives are in, are in government, you can be sure, which is that once people feel that you are somebody who has access to the people who've got power, then immediately you can be brought on board as a consultant. You will be a valuable commodity. And that is one of the other taints on our politics, that people can buy access in, in, in unacceptable ways. So I want to see reform of the House of Lords, reform of the House of Commons, um, greater empowerment of select committees, a reduction in power of the whips. I want to see proper funding of political parties. And I really think this is a moment to be making an argument for all of those kinds of things. Now, one of the things I want to say finally, because some of you are politicians and bloggers and people of influence, is a moratorium has to be made now on further appointments to the House of Lords. If you believe in a democratically elected House, House of Lords, um, or I don't know, you might, some of you might believe in a totally uh, appointed House of Lords, at this moment it is quite wrong that people are bumped in there before a line is drawn in the sand. And, uh, and whether it's uh, Michael Martin or whether it's a, a lavender list that's in a back drawer belonging to Tony Blair of his friends who are waiting to come into the House of Lords, a line should be drawn under it now. And we should not be allowing any appointments to the House of Lords at this moment until we decide what kind of parliament we want. So just to be clear for the old headline-grabbing moment, you're saying you don't think Michael Martin should go into the Lords? I'm sorry, I don't. I, I think that has to be over, that whole thing. And it means, it means a clear out of, I'm afraid, all appointments. If we want to be having a, a House of Lords that matters, we have to talk about, um, uh, uh, you know, I mean, it may be that only 80% of it is, uh, is elected and 20% of it is our Nobel Prize winners or something. But it shouldn't be that it's a rest home for the people that we feel somehow or other um, we owe something to because we've shafted them. And, and, that's, and that's, basically, that's basically what it would be about. And we've got other people like that, people who are kicked in there because... You know, uh, uh, prime ministers want their seats for, for people. People who kicked in there because they, they wanted to stand in a particular seat and didn't get it. People who they feel need to be rewarded for whatever. And so I'm sorry, but I think that Michael Martin is prob uh, probably a thoroughly decent man, and I hope that you know he enjoys his uh, retirement from it all. But I really do not think that he should be given a place in the old folks' home to which I currently belong. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for that. I don't know, Jonathan, or anyone, whether you want to be excused to report that while uh, Norman shares with us. Uh, you're also in the I Told You So camp, aren't you? Uh, yes, let me just say that um, that was very good radical stuff, wasn't it, from Helena? And uh, I think I'm developing a platonic crush, to use that phrase you used um, earlier on. Uh, it's also the case that we're still operating under unchanged rules, so uh, I think both of us may have to disappear for unpredictable votes at uh, particular times during this. And we're voting in the House of Lords today on the two of the people who've been found guilty, or you know, have been found wanting in terms of the rules uh, about uh, about uh, lobbying and about whether they should be suspended or not. And we don't even have in place proper rules as to whether the suspensions are, are possible for people in the House of Lords. We have to do something about all of this. Anyway. Um, I think it goes without saying that the events going on at the moment are, are momentous. Um, history in the making. Uh, it's not quite 1945, but maybe it's kind of 1997 in terms of a, a change of mood in the public at large. It's not just about people claiming for moats. There's something, uh, or moat cleaning, there's something much more profound going on. Um, and I think it shows that there's been a build-up of unhappiness in the public at large, which has demonstrated itself perhaps in subtle ways, but, but clearly 
uh, if you look at the voting patterns, the number of people voting for the two main parties as a percentage of the total votes cast has been diminishing election by election as people move more towards other parties, not just mine, but also the nationalist parties or, or more extreme parties or the Green Party, whoever it happens to be. Uh, we've seen uh, the triumph of Ken Livingstone when he stood against the system as Mayor of London. We saw the Mayor of Hartlepool elected. There's been a wish, I think, from the public at large to break out of what was very much a corseted political arrangement uh, for the 1950s. And that now, uh, that pressure has knocked down our own Berlin Wall very suddenly here in the, here in the House of Commons. Um, the question is, can the reputation be restored? And uh, the answer to that, I'm hopeful, is very much yes. Um, and we've started. We've made a very good start this week. And people out there, I don't know how my colleagues in Westminster feel today, there's a couple here, uh, Nigel and Paul, I see, that um, people are feeling a bit better today in the House of Commons than they were feeling at the beginning of the week. And the reason is we've actually done something to try and move matters on instead of just uh, wandering around like headless chickens. And what we've done is, first of all, we've, we've got a change of speaker coming. That's not to load all the problems on Michael Martin. That would be very unfair to do that. But it was a necessary step to change the Speaker of the House of Commons. Uh, and I think the new Speaker will not simply be a, a replacement in the old mould. The new Speaker is not just a new person. It's someone who will have a mandate because he or she will be elected by a secret ballot for the first time, which changes the rules. It makes it more unpredictable to know who will win. It's also, I think, for the first time, someone who will be perhaps chosen to some extent by the public at large. This is no longer MPs deciding amongst themselves, almost behind closed doors, who the Speaker of the House of Commons is. The public at large are now going to have a say on this matter. The runners and riders, as they're rather inelegantly put, are in the newspapers today, or some of them at least, and the public at large will say who they want to have. I'm no doubt about that, and we, we need to, as MPs, listen to that. And one of the very encouraging factors, I think, of recent days has been that the public, to whom we, after all, we owe our positions, have started taking ownership of the political process in a way they hadn't done before. They've started saying, we're not having this allowance system in this way. This is unacceptable. We want somebody in who's going to reform matters. Uh, and I think that's very, very healthy. Uh, and it's a departure. And things will not be the same again. So the new, the new speaker will have a mandate, and that will give him or her more power, I think, to change the system that we have in, in, in the House of Commons, which can only be for the better. Um, and I want to see some of those changes in terms of uh, some of the things Helena said. We need to have a, a rebalance between the executive and the Parliament. Uh, there's far too much power with the government of the day. There's far too much power with the Prime Minister of the day, with all the prerogative powers to declare war, uh, make peace, uh, grant royal pardons, and indeed kick friends upstairs to the, to the House of Lords. All that's got to be removed from one person or from the Cabinet and returned to Parliament in some shape or form. We need to have a proper written constitution, that's quite right. We need to have changes to the way Parliament works, so we don't have the guillotining of bills. I was talking to my colleague in the Lords today, Bill Bradshaw, about, uh, about bills in the Lords. He was saying that um, you know, the Lords get through its business without guillotining. Well, the same bills as we've got, and they seem to manage it within the time they've allocated, and yet we're told we have to have bills guillotined, we can only have half an hour on DNA sampling yesterday, whatever it was. Absolute nonsense. So we've got to have more time allocated with bills to deal with them properly. Um, then we've got to have changes as well to the power of the whips, that's quite right. And we've got to break open the system. The usual channels have failed. The usual channels have to go. It's got to be far more open and far more accountable than it's been so far. And we've got to have more freedom of information. Because I was sceptical. I've always been a great believer in freedom of information. I'm a Charter 88 uh, original member as well. Transparency is the key 
to delivering a modern parliament and a modern society. And transparency is the key to giving people out there the power which they have a right to have. And it's because of transparency that we're now changing what's happening in our allowance system and all the other architecture of Westminster. It's not because we've suddenly seen the light, it's because we've realised that the public out there don't like it because they're aware of it. So freedom of information has worked and we need rather more of it rather than less of it. And uh, when I put in FOR requests, as I do quite regularly, I notice a difference between uh, local councils and, uh, dare I say, quangos, who seem to respond quite well to FOR requests, and government departments, who seem to find lots of reasons for not answering freedom of information requests. So the culture has got to change in Westminster as well. The, the second step that's helped after the uh, new speaker, we've got a new allowance system coming through, and I think the statement made yesterday by, by Michael Martin, after meeting with the three party leaders and, and, and fleshed out today by Harriet Harman, is entirely welcome. What a pity it couldn't have come several months ago. But nevertheless, who can dispute the logic of what's included in there? There may be some other steps <coughs> to take, but this is what the public have been asking for, in my view, for quite some time. Um, then we've got the, uh, the, quite right, the Prime Minister's initiative for external regulation of the House of Commons. Of course we can't be a gentleman's club anymore. That's a nonsensical 19th century idea. Let's move into the 21st century, at least into the 20th century, in terms of our dealings in this, in this place. So this is the opportunity for really radical reform. And it doesn't always come. It comes maybe once in a generation. And we've got to grasp it. And we've got to see this is not simply about expenses, although that's the focus of it. That's the, that's the tip of the weapon a tip of the battering ram into this place but it is about a more radical recasting of parliament and the recasting of the relationship between parliament and the public at large and I think we're going to see more independent candidates standing, more independent candidates elected to this place and indeed to other places like the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh Assembly or uh, local councils up and down the country I think we're going to see a further diminution of the rigid adherence to political parties. I think people out there are going to vote far more according to the issues of the day, according to the candidates standing, whatever party they, they stand for. And I think we're going to see uh, more questioning of individuals on their own particular records. And I think that's an entirely healthy process and one I fully support. So my, my last point is this. I'm actually quite optimistic, having been highly critical of the expenses system and the way this parliament operates for really quite a long time. Uh, I see this as a break. The dam has broken and there's an opportunity to grasp the moment and make real progress. And I really do think that out of the rubble that we've created in parliament, we can build a structure which is really very strong. Thank you. Can I just ask you to clarify before I pass to Jonathan, you say that the public are having a say, but there's no formal role. We're not talking pop idol voting here, are we? We're just talking... MPs looking at the Times' survey of what their readers have... I mean, are you suggesting the public become involved in the Speaker's election, and if I'm so, how? The, the public shouldn't become... Well, they are becoming involved in the Speaker's election indirectly by making their views right. known in a way which I think previously they wouldn't have done. But I do think as we move towards a, a more interactive world, if we, if we look at the, the benefits of digital and modern technology, then I think we are opening up the prospect of more direct involvement than hitherto we've seen. Jonathan. Thank you, Julia. Um... I agree with quite a lot of what Helena and Norman have said, but not everything. Um, what I certainly agree with Helena on is just how serious a crisis we are currently in. And I fear that talking to some MPs, as I do on a daily basis, still don't quite get the seriousness with which the public 
uh, are taking this and how they feel about this. And you know, unless people do realize the seriousness of this, um, you know, there's going to be a lot more people losing their seats that aren't expecting to lose their seats right now. Um, you know, what has been found in all the surveys that have been done over the last few days, and there's another one that's come out this afternoon from politicshome.com, that 90% of people think that you know, more, more heads have got a role, to be quite frank. Um, until the public see people having paid the price for what's gone on, they're not going to accept that lessons have been learned. And I think it was right for the Speaker to go yesterday. Uh, there are all manner of reasons why he should have gone. He's, he, in my view, he's not been a very good speaker, uh, and he'd, he'd more than had his, his time uh, over the last nine years or so. But, but that's not enough, and he certainly mustn't be scapegoated by, by others as, as the fool guy, because there are huge numbers of people who've been effectively complicit in allowing the system which currently pertains to, to, to pertain for, for a number of years, uh, you had, uh, I mean, obviously the fees office. You know, surely there needs to be a head rolling at the top of the fees office. You know, the people who effectively were allowing all these preposterous claims to go through. You know, it, that, that was outrageous. But, but also th there has to be an admission from the politicians um, that, that effectively all sides, the, the whips offices in particular, but everyone was complicit in allowing this lie to carry on that these were allowances, they weren't part of a salary. There was an unspoken agreement uh, among most MPs that these allowances were there for the taking. You should take as much as you can because we're going to be very good. We're not going to take salary increases, but hey, we can get the allowances. And you know, I'm afraid you know, a lot of people um, took it to a preposterous extent, and you know they, they've they, they've been the masters of their own destruction in that sense, um, and, and it's it's a very sorry state of affairs. That said, um, I hope that the reputation of politics can be restored. You know, historically, this country has had relatively clean politics, and I'm hoping that we we can restore that. Um, as I say, I think. It will probably need a few more heads to roll. In, in terms of you know, political candidates, um, yesterday Douglas Hogg announced that he wouldn't be seeking re-election at the next election. Uh, today, um, Anthony Steen is about to make the same announcement himself. Um, I think there'd probably need to be more, and, uh, and on, on all sides of the House as well, because um, it, it's, 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 if, if they don't go, the public will probably decide for them an election that they, they need to go, which will um, you know, heighten the possibility for, for those people's respective parties that those parties will not get the representation in Parliament that they seek. Uh, and I, I suppose an inevitable result of that might be the emergence of more independent candidates and MPs, as Norman suggests, which you, know, you, you may view as a good thing, uh, although you know, those amongst us who are affiliated to a particular party would obviously prefer to see people from our particular parties elected, but, but that may well be a consequence of, of what goes on. Uh, in terms of changes that, that need to take place, I mean, we, we've had announcements last night from the Speaker of all manner of uh, things which the, the party leaders agreed on last night, 
most of which, by the way, I hasten to add, were announced by David Cameron eight days ago uh, in Conservative Party terms. You know, that's not to say that you know he wasn't slow uh, to make these announcements because yeah, this system has been going on for years. But you know, my frank view is that um, certainly comparing Cameron with the Prime Minister, David Cameron has been far quicker to understand the anger that people feel and to react to that uh, and to set. Um, events in train for, for making changes and you know tonight he's I gather going to send out a letter to every Tory constituency in the country saying if you want to deselect your MP this is how to do it uh, which is pretty unprecedented um, so I think David Cameron is, is reacting well but there are other things that can be done I mean one thing that neither the other speakers have touched on yet and I don't know how Norman would feel about this as an elected politician uh, is the idea perhaps that we should introduce a recall mechanism in this country. They have it in America. I mean, famously, that's how uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger got into the um, governorship of California because Gray Davis was recalled and they had a new election. You know, clearly, there would need to be some rules about the thresholds of how many people have to sign a petition and so on for all this to happen, but I think that would be really healthy. I think it would stop complacency. I think you know, those MPs you know, with very, very safe seats who generally have got elected come what may would perhaps feel a little less safe, safe which, which probably would be a good thing uh, for democracy and to encourage them to be doing the right thing. And I think that would give more power to people. Uh, and I think on that very subject, uh, there's, a, there's an argument for giving more power to people um, by devolving power, perhaps to a lower level, and giving local councils more power and making people feel you know, that they've got more chance to influence things because they're influencing uh, voting for people who are closer to them rather than more remote. And, I mean, you can bring the whole European issue into that and the fact that most of what Brussels does, people feel so remote from and probably, um, you know, there would be a lot of people who, who want to get away from that. Would you go as far as Douglas Carswell and go for open primaries? I'm relatively open to the idea of open primaries. I mean, certainly I think that... I think that people, certainly in terms of selection of candidates, you know, the, the, you should have as broad a, uh, a pool of people as possible from that from that party to, ch to choose from, and, and in the case of an open primary, a wider public to choose from. You know, there are huge amounts of power in the parties invested in you know three or four people sitting in a candidates department, um, you know, who can kind of make or break careers. Um, when I think if the right person comes along for a seat and that person wants to represent it and the, the voters of that seat or the Conservatives in that seat want that person to represent them, then, then they should be able to, to go for it. Uh, another thing I think is frightfully important is cutting the cost of politics. Um, the idea that anyone in this country is going to support state funding of political parties right now is just absolutely a non-starter. Uh, I think uh, that that needs to be cut, and, and then there's other things like that. You know, every MP currently gets ten thousand pounds a year for communications allowances, just to kind of advertise themselves. Well, quite frankly, that they should be advertising themselves. Um, you know, I, historically, I've been an advocate of giving MPs a higher salary, but I'm afraid that in the current environment, I think that they've cooked their own goose, and that's just not. A possibility that's going to be addressed in in, in the near future. Um, certainly, their salary should be set by an outside body, not themselves. Um, and in due course, I think yes, there is a case for, for increasing it and to, to perhaps put it more in line with, 
uh, you know, people talk about head teachers, GPs, whatever, um, because most MPs do work extremely hard, work very long hours, very antisocial hours, and, and generally have the interests of their constituents and their country at heart. Um, but I'm afraid the last few weeks have not been very glorious. So an open-necked shirt, albeit a, my shirt is hairier than your shirt of frugality. Joey, what is it like for you? Often politicians present themselves in the best possible light for their reputations when they talk to Sky. What are your observations about how this is both playing out and what's going to happen to political reputation? I was just thinking, I mean, I, I think it's probably right to say that I've been working in Westminster for less time than uh, any of my colleagues up here, and yet, uh, so I, maybe I've been mixing in the wrong circles, but actually I do feel much less optimistic than I think those people that we've heard speak before me. I mean, Helena pic pictures obviously a pretty miserable situation, and yet turns around and says, well, that is so bad that surely it proves that the only thing open to us now is to grasp the nettle and really sort it out. Whereas I look at it, and I see the roots of it that are in timidity, fearfulness, uh, weakness, uh, and stupidity uh, on the part of many MPs, and say, well, I think that, you know, that unfortunately is probably going to be where we're going to be uh, for the foreseeable future. I mean, let me explain to you what I mean. I think that in the same way that we are now obviously in a period of uh, gloom for the economy for quite some time and people are going to be, you know, having ta um, tax rises and uh, they're going to be feeling it in their pocket, I think that realistically we're also going to be in a period of gloom in the relationship between uh, voters and their elected uh, representatives. I've long felt, well for some time my gut feeling has been that the next election that probably there, there will probably will be a fairly conclusive sort of marching of the Labour Party out to the knacker's yard and a bullet in the back of the head. Um, but that will be done without any great enthusiasm and I don't think that there will be any great euphoria for the incoming party and I think that the, the fact that we've now seen um, that obviously you know that many Tory MPs have been to use the vernacular you know drinking from the same trough as the uh, as the other lot uh, is not really going to do obviously any incoming party any favours and I think it's for that reason obviously that this has been particularly dangerous uh, for the um, for the Conservative Party and why David Cameron obviously felt the need to take such uh, what was seen as being very swift and radical action last week. I think the thing is that you have to also look at where we are. I mean, the roots of the current situation obviously go back quite a long time. I think you need to split. Um, you need to see two different phenomena here. You need to see the one that's being uncovered by the Daily Telegraph day on day and all the receipts that are coming out and the, the basic expenses problem. Uh, and the thing is that I think we can all identify with that. We probably all know individuals within our own organisations or we've all heard stories about expenses and greed and venality and so on and so forth. I mean, in some ways, it's almost reassuring because at least we can identify with that. We can, we can work out why, what the motivation for all this stuff was. It was basic greed and, uh, and self-interest. What I think is more worrying is that the second phenomenon which also has going, been, been going back some way. The second phenomenon is how MPs have chosen to deal with this situation and to try to manage it. Uh, and that has been catastrophically, obviously, failed uh, for quite some time. I mean, I f we forget, I was looking back at some of the tapes, but it was only in January that um, the MPs were, were being 
they, they almost came to a vote on the, this question of actually exempting themselves from the Freedom of Information Act over the expenses. Now, obviously, Michael Martin's got the blame for a lot of that, but that was being done, I think, I mean, correct me, Steve, but that was being done on government time. Gordon Brown thought that that had been stitched up through the Whip's office and so on and so forth. It was the classic gentleman's club that he now says the Commons should not be all about. And I think that the, the problem is that if you look at the way in which this has been uh, mismanaged over the... I mean, that, that, I think, if you look at that particular thing, why was he uh, willing to allow that sort of an arrangement to go forward? You look at it now and you think, that, how could anybody have thought that that was a good idea, that MPs would actually exempt themselves from the Freedom of Information Act over their, their expenses? And it was being done, basically, because of fear of backbench opinion. There was a lot of fear of Labour backbench opinion on, on his side, and I'm sure that David Cameron was equal, equally worried about rebellion uh, on, the, on the Tory side. So I think that what we've had is MPs as a body being collectively stupid, and I think that stupidity, personally, I find in my elected representatives more worrying than venality, uh, and leaders being very timid and, and fearful. Um, that's my sort of depressing sort of assessment of where things are. The one thing I would say is that we only have to look at what's happened over the past few months in the United States to see that things can change very quickly, that a lot of people who were very depressed about politics not very long ago there, now politics is everything that they want to be involved in. So things can change pretty quickly. Individuals could come along. I don't think the British people are persuaded that David Cameron is, is the British Obama. I don't think David Cameron's persuaded that he's the British Obama either at this point. But I think that, that clearly, if somebody comes along who really has the ideas that can, that can change things and the sort of, you know, the, the inspiring, um, exhilarating sort of ideas that Helena was talking about, then you never know. Things could, uh, things could be different. But uh, the cobbled together solution and the shuffling of the deck chairs is, is the way in which I would see things proceeding as things stand. And you don't see some sort of public will overriding the self-preservation. Do you not think that, that those doors are opening? Certainly in the printed press, the commentators are alluding to that. Jonathan Friedland today saying, all this constitutional reform I've been banging on about that everyone said was boring for years is now deeply sexy. I mean, do you not think that people are going to push those self-interested MPs? Well, to be honest, I'd like, I mean, I'd be interested to hear back from those people who are going out. It was interesting to hear what you're saying about going out on the doorsteps. I think that's what we want to hear about now, is to, is to, is to get a sense of how people are reacting and what people really want. I don't really, given that I've been so wrapped up in the sort of hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute uh, minute shenanigans here over the past few uh, weeks, I don't almost feel qualified to, to but things are changing so quickly on the doorstep, so I think that that's where the, that's where the action is going to be now. Thank you. Norman, is that you, that ringing bell that will play havoc with our podcast? Under the old system, I'm told it's a one-line vote, so I'll stay here. Oh, that's all right then. <laughs> Steve, fight through it. You've seen it all on uh, both sides of the camera and the pen. What, what are you hearing and feeling and what's going on? Well, I'm quite excited that we've witnessed the first act of rebellion in the new era with uh, Norman not going to vote on uh, as the bell rings again. Um, I'll give a few kind of random uh, but connected observations and a few conclusions. 
first of all, it's pretty clear and obvious to me that by, we did not, by some sinister, weird coincidence, elect 600 crooks in the 2005 election. In other words, what has happened, in my view, would have happened if we had had another election and another 635 people, or whatever it is, came into the House of Commons. It's absurd to sort of assume that this group, who happened to be in here at this point, are uniquely greedy or corrupt. So it's not, in essence, down to this bunch of individuals. It is the system that they got caught in and became intoxicated with that is the problem. And the fact that the system was in place and allowed to um, flourish raises questions which have been addressed by other members of the panel. The lack of transparency, the insularity of the House of Commons, the fact that um, when people arrive at a place they soon become very accustomed and relaxed about what is happening within, confident that people from outside have no idea what's going on from within. So that has been the essence of the problem. And clearly some of the solutions have already been raised. The need for transparency, external regulation, a much more accessible way of um, functioning. I was very struck, and indeed so were people in number 10, that voters found it incomprehensible that there couldn't be a debate on the no-confidence motion. People, you know, there was talk about early-day motions, substantive motions. Immediately, you've lost quite a large section of the audience. That's the relatively straightforward elements of this issue. This lot aren't uniquely corrupt. Uh, the system is the problem, and therefore you need to change the system. That's the easy bit. But there are more fundamental issues than that. And some of them, I think are to do with what we as voters want and we actually in the media want. And I think at the moment voters are very confused. It was interesting hearing Norman claiming the public were claiming ownership of this issue. I don't think they are. I think they're very angry, but I don't think they know what they want. Let me give some examples. If you ask in an opinion poll uh, whether voters want strong leadership from their Leaders, you would get 80% saying, yes, we want strong government, strong leadership. Then if they're asked, do you want the House of Commons to hold the government to account much more effectively, I think you would get 80% saying, yes. It's therefore much harder to be a strong leader in those circumstances. Let me explain. When I first became interested in politics as a teenager in the mid-70s, the House of Commons, unreformed, held that Labour government to account. I remember the first ever interview, I remember clearly, was with Harold Wilson when he was Prime Minister. It was about 75, and Robin Day said to him, you've lost another vote, Mr Wilson. It's, you, you're, you're finished. You're too weak. And he said, yes, but we did win one about eight days ago, Robin, which many people thought we would lose, so we have won one vote in the last eight days. And that was what happens when you have a House of Commons holding a government to account. Now, under Margaret Thatcher and then under Tony Blair, you had these landslide parliaments and a culture in which strong leadership was seen as a strength. I remember when Blair came in in 97, the people around him showing off about the degree to which they were controlling their MPs. It was seen as a virtue. So the public have to decide whether they want the Thatcher-Blair style of leadership which is possible with big landslide parliaments and a tame 
House of Commons, which is one of the reasons why you've got all the problems now, or whether you want the House of Commons to hold a government to account much more robustly, in which case you cannot have that kind of leadership because a government will not know from day to day quite how much of its programme it will get through. We as voters need to make a decision about that. I also think it's really interesting, I'll tell you what side I've come down on in a minute, things like it's fascinating how both David Cameron and Gordon Brown have suddenly developed a passion for deselecting NPs. They've both become disciples of Tony Benn, from what I can see. I never thought um, the day would come. Do you remember Tony Benn? If you go back to your constituencies, they must decide whether you stand for the House of Commons or not. And it's nothing to do with the voters at all. You decide. It's not to do with the leadership. David Cameron and Gordon Brown have become Bennites about 25 years after Steve the Richards event. Steve Richards Mike Yarwood. It's fantastic. And, um, <laughs> I, I make that a fascinating... Is Rory Bremner's uh, you know, real challenge? <laughs> On a much smaller salary. Um, <laughs> and, uh, no <laughs> and no expenses. And no expenses. So I, I put that in, and, but, but of course they've only half become Benites because, for example, Cameron, who's been widely praised for the way he's responded and he's shown deft footwork, but he's actually said two contradictory things. He said um, a panel controlled by him will interview MPs to decide whether they can carry on and he's told his local parties to decide so actually they're still confused and I suspect we as voters uh, are unsure whether we are Benites wanting local parties to tell MPs what to do or not so similarly with constituencies it's really interesting there's this big now whenever someone says let's halve the number of MPs there's a big cheer but polls suggest that one of the few things that MPs like is their relationship with their con sorry the constituents like is the fact they've got a local MP representing them well if you have half the MPs cut that relationship is bound to change so voters have not taken control they're completely confused and have full of contradictory aspirations and so inevitably, although it sounds at odds with the mood of the times, this moment will have to be grabbed not by the voters because they have these contradictory objectives. It demands political leadership. Now, whether any of the current lot are up to it, I think, is an interesting question. All I would say is I agree, actually, if Jonathan Freedom wrote it this morning, I agree with it. For the first time um, for a long time, this is a popular issue. Um, there is a way of unlocking doors which could not be done before. Uh, well, could have been, actually, but you would have been sort of raging against indifference on the whole. I know, uh, uh, you know, that there have been attempts, quite successful, sort of to tap into young people's interests. Um, but on the whole, there's been a sense out there that most voters aren't that interested. Well, they are now big time. So it is an opportunity. So very briefly... I have come round, actually, um, I never used to be, but I am now a supporter of electoral reform, partly through witnessing what has happened to this government, where the only real pressure this government has felt. Blair once said to me, uh, the, the opposition for us are the media, no one else. Um, the only pressure Blair and Brown have really felt with their landslide parliaments is from the media. And on the whole, it's been a pretty destructive relationship. So electoral reform and a, a more robust House of Commons with governments not reliant on 100 majorities so they can know they can get things through will put other pressures on them. 
and I think that would be healthy. Transparency, Jonathan mentioned more power for councils, that's obviously got to happen. If MPs are going to, if there are going to be fewer of them in bigger constituencies, with their main role being holding the government here to account, they're not going to be social workers as well. So you've got to address all these things. And at the same time, I think, therefore, the media would have to change its attitude. It will not necessarily be weak for a government if the House of Commons has challenged it in profound ways. If that's what voters want, it can't be weak government, or else no government's ever going to last for more than about 10 minutes. But that will be a massive media cut. Ten past eight on the Today programme, so you lost a vote, what are you going to resign today or tomorrow, or blah, blah, blah. Uh, and someone will turn around and say, well, look, you wanted a strong House of Commons, you've got a strong House of Commons, we'll try again, we'll try and get it through in a different way. And we will have to, as journalists, change our sort of vocabulary as well. So I think this is the beginning of something potentially very big. But at the moment, people are still very confused about what route to take. And I wait to see really strong leadership. I just see confused, uh, I agree with Joey about this, quite timid leadership from certainly the two big parties on it. But let's wait and see. It's potentially a big moment. But there's lots more clarification needed in the coming weeks. Thank you very much. Well, lots of different iterations on reform and constitutional reform, fewer MPs or different uh, ways of cutting it, um, whether or not it, the independents are going, the people of independence rather than the independent newspaper are going to march upon Parliament. Uh, it's now time to have your comments. Some microphones are visible. If you would put up your hand, say your name, rank and serial number, I'm going to come first, in fact, to John Stoneborough at the back. John, of course, played a role in advising the Speaker not being heeded, the former Speaker, the recently stood down Speaker. And so he's still there at the moment, but he's whatever it is in an interregnum. Um, John. Yeah, if I can just bring you back actually to the proposition uh, today, um, there are a couple of quick points I'd like to make. The first is that Norman Baker is the embodiment of a thorn in the flesh, and as I had to deal with his questions from time to time in a backroom capacity, uh, I think you can truly say, you told us all and you were right. Um, and, and I think you should stand up and take, take some real uh, uh, pride in, in what's actually happening at the moment. But having said that, I think what we do need to do is, a, is to have a radical reform, not just of the members that we're talking about here, but also of the House of Commons administration. Remember, there is a kind of view within the, the House of Commons that, uh, to, to quote the Daily Mail, that the, the members themselves are kind of trabants and the, and the administration are indeed these Rolls-Royce engineers. And there are many great men uh, in the background here, but nonetheless they are also the forces of reaction. And you are not going to get the reforms that you want unless the new speaker can actually get a grip of the administration and make sure that that change has the full support of the House of Commons Commission, and uh, not the House of Commons Commission, but of the uh, um, civil servants who uh, are behind uh, the House of Commons Commission. And until we're assured of that, I think you're not going to see the success that you want. Thank you. Another comment? Um, Eamon Butler from the Adam Smith Institute. Yes, I, I think um, parliamentarians don't realize just how uh, deeply feel, people feel on this. Um, if you want to restore the reputation of politics, um, then politicians have to be seen as being 
uh, part of the real world, which they're not anymore. Um, it's a different world. It's not just the moats and the chandeliers. It's the, even when people say, oh, I'll pay back 40,000 pounds, most people say, where could anybody like us find 40,000 pounds to pay back? Um, it's, just, it's just a world away. And I think that if you want to restore faith, then you've got to end this separate political class. You've got to make politics a service not a career. That is part of the difficulty. And I would do things like I would make sure that ministers were paid the same as members of parliament, so that they weren't, uh, so that members of parliament weren't always trying to suck up to Downing Street in, in order to advance themselves and get bigger pensions and all the rest of it. I'd have term limits on members of parliament. Uh, in three election terms seems to me perfectly sufficient. I would, as Jonathan uh, hinted at, have open primaries so that the selection of candidates was much less political and they were not coming so much from the political world of trade unions or, or local politics and all the rest of it. And I would devolve uh, funding and power down from the uh, House of Commons, uh, down from Parliament, much more down to the local level. And then you would get better people coming up at the local level. So I think that would restore trust. One more, and then we'll take some remarks and go back. Oh, I'm Gideon Freeman from Lexington Communications. I, I too, was a teenage enthusiast for Charter 88, and I'm very uh, pleased to see that these issues are now back in, in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in the front line. I think the only thing I would take issue with is Steve Richards' um, point about uh, how this parliament is not uniquely corrupt and greedy. There's, there is something... Uh, in my neighbourhood, the local MP for whom I did not vote claimed nothing under the additional costs allowance as an outer lender MP, but did claim the London waiting. And one mile down the road, the Labour MP for whom I would have voted if I lived a mile down the road required £23,000 a year. So, so the same system that appeared to corrupt one MP didn't corrupt the neighbouring MP. And so it's not, it's not fair to say that, um, that uh, we would have ended up precisely as we have done, whatever, whatever the intention. And I, just one other fact which strikes me as relevant is that the bigger the majority in each case, the more likely they appear to have been to be corruptible. Um, and there are three times as many. Uh, out, of the, out of the 94 who've been done over so far, there are three times as many in the top 25% of, uh, uh, of uh, big majorities as there are in the bottom 25% of marginals. So having to fight for every vote every day um, appears to keep you clean, whereas being able to win the seat with a, a red or blue rosette, whether you're a human or a monkey, seems to corrupt you. I can see a political slogan there. Can we just have reactions from the panel about, um, you know, pay? Jonathan, you were saying they've cooked their own goose and don't put their pay up, but surely you can't, in fact, expect MPs to live on 64,000 and... Or can you? 64,000 shorn of anything else. Well, I think at the moment they're going to have to. I don't think there's any public mood at all for increasing MP salaries right now. I think um, you know that there is there is just no appetite whatsoever, and I, I don't think that they'd get away with that. So I think that's a longer-term project that you've got to look at, but but, but that that will take time. Um, you know, and, and you know, at the end of the day, it, it's what they put. The 64 grand puts them in the top three percent of the population in terms of salaries, anyway. You know, most. I mean, I know, you know most ordinary voters don't you know, live the lifestyle that an MP has to live. But you know, it's certainly in terms of those raw figures, most ordinary voters are earning a hell of a lot less than that. And 
you know, in the in the current age in which we live of austerity, which David Cameron is talking about, you know, MPs are going to have to uh, accept that and, and go along with it. Just responding very quickly to two quick points that were made. Um, Kidden said about you know, the bigger majority makes you more corruptible. I think there's a degree of truth in that, and that's certainly why I think the whole idea of a recall ballot is a is a good thing to have on paper because it means that even people, as I say, in safe seats. Uh, are not as safe as they might otherwise be. But I do disagree with Eamon uh, in terms of uh, term limits, because actually I think at the end of the day, if you're fed up with your MP or you disapprove of them, then you won't re-elect them for a third or a fourth or a fifth term, whatever it might be. I don't think there's anything wrong in principle for someone, you know, as long as they're put up for election every few years. Um, if they get re-elected, then so be it. Norman, um, the pay issue and whether there is a lifestyle that ought to go with being an MP or whether they're just living at large. You are not living at large, but I'm not where large, are you on pay? Mortgage to, uh, in my, on my first house to, uh, to, to demonstrate that. But no, I mean, I think the, the point is it probably won't wear us putting up our salary. That's perfectly true. But the whole point of where we are now is that we have forfeited the right as members of parliament to control our expenses and control our pay and the whole thing has to be externalized to some official body that's got public confidence and whatever they decide we have to accept if it means pay going down we accept it if it means pay going up we accept it we don't vote or we have to vote formally on it but we don't try and fiddle around with whatever Christopher Kelly or whoever else says we have to have and that way we protect ourselves and give the public confidence can I just pick up on one point on the uh, on the very interesting point about the, the link between expense abuse and majority. That's absolutely right. And I, and I noticed that in Polly Toynbee's article in The Guardian today. I congratulate her, not least of all, because she's a constituent of mine, so I have to be nice to my constituents. Um, I don't know, it's her second home. I think it's her second home, yeah. But um, <laughs> she, um, she, she's absolutely right on that point. And, and this is another reason why PR is actually one of the solutions. How could I, as a Lib Dev, not have mentioned PR in my initial comments, but of course PR is, is, is the answer because at the moment you've got 650 contests going on, of which only 100 are actually real in the country, with the marginals between two parties. The rest of them are fake contests where nothing happens apart from the national campaign on, on television and radio. And all those people are dis disenfranchised. So getting them involved, making every vote count, is one of the answers. And, uh, and just lastly, picking up on, on Joey's point, he was very pessimistic and he said, well, we're going to swap we know we're going to swap one lot of people with un unfavourable claims for another lot of unfavourable claims. You know, we're not in a two-party system. I'm sorry it's a Lib Dem point, but it's also an SNP point, it's a Pai Cymru point, and it's an independent point. We are not in a two-party system anymore. The public won't wear it, and we're increasingly going to see, I think, even with the present system, uh, we're going to see far more people not voting for Tory and Labour at the next election. And remember, David Cameron's coming from a point where he's got fewer seats than Michael Foote had in 1983. The chances of David Cameron getting a majority, I think, are pretty remote because of the, the sophology of it. So we're in a different situation, and there's a real chance with a hung parliament, dare I say, we can actually force some of these changes through. So don't be pessimistic. Helena, can I ask you also to address the point about the back office? I mean, is that not part of the restoration of the reputation of politics? This fees office seems to be yeah. almost more disreputable than the MPs. It's one of the reasons why I... I, I 
I was, I, a lot of the things that Jonathan said I agreed with, and I was interested in his even being sort of soft on the possibility of open primaries, because I'm very against um, fixed lists. And you know, one of the things I fear is that you know they'll talk about having some kind of election on a, uh, a, a in the upper house, but it will end up being with with party list systems. Yeah. And I am against any kind of list yeah. system because it gives too much power to the same old folk inside parties, and they'll pick off their own kind of you know. Um, uh, uh, um, you know, fodder that will go in and and, uh, and represent them in the upper house, and so I really am against that. But I want to just to pick up on on this business of the back office. You see, that's why I think it's not the business of Michael Martin, and I think he's a, a perfectly nice and decent man. But I think he couldn't. He it actually is a constitutional job. And so, and and he was too party a man. And I think there are certain rules in our in that. that, that put this on people. One is the Lord Chancellorship, another is the Attorney General's rule, and the, and the Speaker's rule has it too. Well, you have to, if you take it on, you have to somehow grow into a person who's above and beyond party. And I'm afraid he didn't make that leap. And some people don't make it into the role of Attorney General either. Um, and I'm not going to name you names, but there are certain people who don't move beyond their, their obeisance to their party or their prime minister and don't remember that their role actually is beyond that. And, and so I feel that the, that the role of the, the, of the speaker is an incredibly important one. It's not just about standing there and saying order, order. Actually, it's about very much that backroom stuff, about be, helping that to modernise. And you're going to have to have somebody very tough to be able to do it and to take it on. And I think that's a real issue. But there are a number of things that have come up in, in, in the course of this discussion which I think are really important. It's listening to Steve saying he's come round to PR, and I think it's very interesting because I came round to PR sometime in the 80s, and um, go, doing the power inquiry, uh, Ferdinand Mount was my vice chair, and Ferdinand Mount, for any of you who do, don't know him, is a really very interesting man, and he worked for Margaret Thatcher in Downing Street during the Conservative years, and uh, often writes in the Telegraph and so on. And he was absolutely against PR until we started going out on the rounds. And he started hearing from people. And people kept saying, why the hell should I bother to vote? I have, my, my, my inclination is to vote Labour, but I'm in a Tory constituency. So what's the odd? It doesn't make any damn difference. So I just stay at home and watch the telly. And the same goes in the opposite direction in these constituencies that are where the majority is so huge. And if they felt that in some way their vote might count in some way, then they would bother to get off their, their bottoms. So, they do, so it's very important to make votes count, to find a way of making people's votes count. And, and that's one of the, the important things. I think the business of trying to open it out so it's not all... I mean, this business of Georgia Gould down in Aerith and folk being parachuted into places. And part of the problem of... Why should it be that there's somebody becomes the, the MP for Hartlepool who'd never visited Hartlepool in their life before? You know, it's ridiculous. Or after the you day. know, but you should, you know. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, I mean, and but it's the same goes for plenty of Conservatives too. You know, it's, it's across the board. People should. I mean, in the United States, you know, you will not find it. Hillary Clinton was considered a carpetbagger for wanting to take, you know, to move in on New York because she was not from the area. People expect the people in their own areas to, to stand for them. So I, I think there should be more of that. I think that 
this is the very time people are talking about the recession. This is why, this is when you do need a strong parliament. I mean, my God, you know, when you want the city to be taken hold of by the throat, when you've got um, issues uh, that are so serious for people, and your parliament is in, in the state that it's in, then you're really in a state of crisis. And that's why I think this is a moment to seize. I, I of course, I agree with Joey about the, about the timidity and the fearfulness. But of course, I mean, we've got a whole set of people who've made politics their career. And they have no hinterland, and so there's nothing to go back to. And so, of course, they're going to cling on, you know, like grim death to, to what is already there. And we've got to try and somehow un unseat that way of thinking and, and interfere with it. And I liked your idea that politics is about service and not a career. We have to do something about that. And that becomes back to if Steve is saying, look, you know, your MP becomes different if you, minim, you know, reduce the size of you know, make, reduce the number of constituencies, make them much bigger. MPs will stop doing the business of are your drains not working? In fact, I thought that everybody had a drain problem got in touch with me, and I know nothing about drains, but they think if you're a lawyer, maybe you might be able to sue the council. But uh, um, I, I think that then it argues even more strongly for why the local is so important. We have done in local politics. We have reduced po local politics to nothing. And we should actually be putting put a, a huge amount of energy into revitalizing local politics, because from there comes a new whole body of young politicians who will find their way through into the bigger system. It's where it has, money has to be put there, because why would you bother to do it if you didn't have money to expend on stuff locally? And also, it means that they will be the people who will do much more of that nurturing and that kind of, if you like, social work, which, which formerly went to the, to the MP. So, I mean, that's why you have to have this holistic business of, of, of uh, reform, and we have to all seize the moment. We'll take a few more comments from out here and then come back. Dr. Rosenberg, uh, I'm a freelance journalist. I wanted to take up um, Norman Baker's point. Um, Norman Baker seemed quite proud that MPs were no longer going to have control of their pay and expenses. Not a particularly original point, but I'm rather sad that MPs are not going to have control over their pay and expenses. Leave aside the constitutional point about whether you can actually uh, give up these powers, which ultimately I think do reside in the House of Commons uh, and Parliament is sovereign. But isn't it a rather sad day uh, that you're giving uh, these powers up? And wouldn't it be better if everybody agreed on a system as seems to be emerging at the moment, which is fair and open and that the public can trust, and that you can be trusted to decide on what rates of pay you deserve? Hugh Tutton-Brown, um, if a Royal Naval ship runs aground, the captain gets sacked and courts-martialed. As this expensive debacle has highlighted systemic failings, then why aren't leaders of all parties being forced to resign for not fixing it before they got caught? OK, leadership's failure. Uh, I'm here from Mumsnet. Um, following on from Joshua's point, I was going to ask whether there's a case for reform of the Standards and Privileges Committee, and specifically for removing their power to discipline MPs and placing that in an independent body, which obviously is another breach of parliamentary sovereignty, but is this something that's warranted by the situation? And I also wanted to ask how, this is something that's causing a lot of um, interest on Mumsnet, how can we find out which MPs were behind the attempts to block Heather Brooks' freedom of information requests? Steve, let me, what's your take either on some of the previous questions or on I mean, Joshua's point about can't MPs regulate themselves better, I think, is really a, a, a big question. And also, what do you, wh why don't you walk the gangplank with the leaders that fail? 
Well, yeah, I'll take that. Just briefly to answer the, the, the guy there who said there were some very good MPs. Of course there are, and some very bad ones. Um, and I think if another 600 elect were selected last time round, the proportions would have been around about the same, I assume, unless, by, as I say, by some weird coincidence, we elected a bunch of weirdos at the last election uh, who were more weird than normal. I, anyway, uh, um, on the scouts, I'm suspicious of this um, uh, let's see who we can get next culture. I'll tell you why. It never, ever addresses the fundamental issues. I already feel, now the Speaker's announced uh, he's gone, some of the heat going out of the issue. Just a bit, but some of the heat. And I'll give you a classic example I wrote about it the other day. I remember two years ago, at this very time, people, there was the foreign prisoners crisis. Do you remember? Some foreign prisoners were unaccountable for. Huge story. Within seconds, the story went on to Charles Clark, can he survive, should he survive, or should he go? That became the story, not the foreign prisoners. He went, and I have no idea what happened to the foreign prisoners. No the, the story ended with the resignation or the departure of Charles Clark as Home Secretary. All, I, all I'm telling you is if, you, if the focus becomes should Cameron go, should Brown go, should, some of the other things that we've been talking about, which are the real causes of this, would just get lost in it. And the more scalps you get, the more the temperature of the story will go down, is my guess. As I say, I think it's gone down a bit since the Speaker announced he was going, so I don't believe I'm in that. Just uh, more generally, I share some of the optimism about the panel that this could be quite an exciting moment. I also worry it could go all the other way and be really trivial. And uh, Norman sounded quite excited about the rise of more independent MPs and candidates. I think it would be a complete disaster. Um, having shared a, a cruise for two weeks with Martin Bell and Esther Ranson last <laughs> August, um, the idea of them becoming Prime Minister... And I was on, uh, I was, uh, yeah, I shared endless panels like this for two weeks with them. I got to know them intimately. And I really don't uh, recommend them as Prime Minister... Oh, this is all being recorded, isn't it? I forgot. Um, <laughs> Um, and for one serious point, actually, that in the two weeks, even though I spent many, many hours with both of them, I have no idea what their views on the economy are or Europe or all the things which should determine elections. And that's why, in the end, although parties are pretty unhealthy at the moment, I'm really interested in this sort of new ways of selecting candidates which have come up. I think they are some good ideas. Uh, I think it's got to be party-based. And if this debate goes into, you know, a Martin Bell, Esther Ranson detour, it will be a real... Disaster. Joey, the Heather Brook point, regardless of whether or not she's a mum and therefore a mum's net, is a really interesting one. Why is there not more focus on her? Why was she not all over the airwaves last night as the person that forced the issue? We'd probably like to talk about ourselves more than give her credit. I mean, she has been, she has been featured a lot. We had her on uh, yesterday. I mean, uh, certainly she deserves uh, a great deal uh, of credit. I guess, we, I guess we see it as sort of history and uh, our job is not necessarily to, to report a historical battle, it's to report where we're going with it But is, is there also a sense that the main story for political broadcasters in particular is to interrogate faces that people know and the back office and the behind the scenes e efforts say of the Standards and Privileges Committee is less of an issue than perhaps how under threat are the leaders? How ahead are they? It can be. Somebody phoned me this, this morning saying, we're, we're trying to think of somebody new to talk to this afternoon. <laughs> can you think of anybody and, uh, with radical ideas? And they were obviously struggling with it. So, uh, yes, I think that sometimes we do, obviously. We, uh, we, we turn back to the same 
voices that we've heard again and again. I mean, the thing is that on a day of real sort of personal drama like yesterday, to be honest, you do want to be hearing from Michael Martin's friends and from his opponents, and it, it makes compelling theatre because those are the people who know him best. But yes, when we're talking about the ideas that are going to move us forward, I'm sure we do need to look more widely. I think we all, obviously, everybody and everybody in the public has opinions about MPs' pay. That's one of the things that I'm sure that you know is, is, is universal. Personally, um, and this is one that we all discuss in the office anyway. I don't see MPs' pay as massively out of line or an, an anomaly. I hope there are no GPs in the audience, but I tend to think GPs on 150, 200 grand or whatever, I feel more strongly about that than I do about the level of, uh, of MPs' pay. But I think the problem is that MPs' pay is always perceived through the prism of what is deemed to be politically ex acceptable. And what is deemed to be politically acceptable is, again, a sort of stitch-up between what the party leadership and the media think is politically acceptable without actually asking anybody out there. So I think that that, and that is an issue that goes to the heart of what Joshua, what you were talking about, and, and, and a lot of these things like the Standards and Privileges Committee, and to come to a more grown-up way uh, of actually trying to get a realistic understanding of what people would want. I think we're some way away from that at this and point. Isn't, and Jonathan, just on that point, I mean, you say the public won't wear it, but arguably the public didn't want to wear the Iraq war and the Parliament voted for it. I mean, at what point do parliamentarians have to to vote in what they think is right. Maybe Norman and Elena well, can answer this as well. Why are you so adamant that the public won't wear a pay rise and therefore it won't happen, if in fact it would make the MPs? I'm just sensing a, a public mood out there. And as I say, if, if, if MPs were to vote themselves now of the kind of 50% pay rise and put themselves under 100 grand, you know, you would see so many Martin Bell candidates at the next right. election and people so willing to vote for them. It I mean, is, in fact, no, self-interest rather than regulating the system. But Julia, I, I, think, I, think it's, I think the problem is doing it now is just... It's, it's like the business of the scandal of, of um, um, funding of political parties. You know, it became a debate when we just had the whole business of, you know, where peers buying their peerages. And so there was no way that anybody, the public were going to say that they were going to pay for political parties when they thought they were up to no damn good. And so this is not a moment where this is going to be very uh, appealing to the public. But it is true that, you know, there was a point, for example, during um, um, the Thatcher period when some, there was discussion about do, who could you pin um, uh, MP salaries to. And it was, it, it, there was talk of it being to a county court judge, a, you know, a crown court judge, you know, and, and, and it was out of, it was, it was the same kind of thing. There are 600 of them <laughs> up and down the country, you know. If you're looking for a professional body of people, you know, they're standing as much, you know. So, so you pin it to something that's sensible. And, and county court judges now earn about 90 grand. So, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, and I, I think that that's where you should, we should be thinking of moving, but I think it's probably not the moment to be having that debate. But I think that that's, that is what yep. ought to happen. Norman, and then we'll go back out for one more time. Part of the reason we're in the mess we're in is because MPs have regulated their own pay, have been reluctant to put up their salary because of the public consequences, and have increased expenses by the back door to make up for that. So I, I say to Joshua, you know, he wants, he wants to carry on regulating our own pay. It's not been a great success to date, has it, uh, looking at the mess we're in now? And you've got to do something different. And it, it may be in an ideal world you wouldn't do, but that's where we are, and that's the reality of, of where we are. Can I just make up one, pick up one point? Somebody asked a question about the, um, which MPs blocked FOI requests. 
Um, well, I mean, the House of Commons Commission has been the body which has been very reactionary, chaired by the Speaker, and which has thwarted FOI requests, which has spent vast, vast amounts of public money uh, on, on legal fees, disgracefully, to fight modest requests. My FOI request for breakdown of MPs' travel was cost over £20,000 to the best legal brains you could pay for to stop that information coming out. And the other way you can check is to check the private member's bill introduced by David McLean, member of the House of Commons Commission, Tory MP, who introduced this bill to exempt MPs from FOI altogether, and that was on a Friday actually rather than government time, but then all the government ministers are wheeled in to vote for that. And you can look at the record in Hansard and you can see which MPs voted to exempt MPs from freedom of information and which didn't. And I'm happy to say on that occasion I made a very long speech of about three hours duration to talk the Talk the bill. I wouldn't recommend listening to it, it's not particularly interesting, but it managed to get us through to uh, half past two and on to the next day. I'd like to ask the question also, who made the decision that Tony Blair's receipts should all be uh, uh, shredded. shredded? Perhaps we can I ask mean, I mean, I mean, our, our friend in the who, Speaker's who, who office. Who made that, that decision? Friend. I thought everything had to be kept. I thought, <laughs> I thought we all had to keep everything for six years or something. I think you'll find that the Prime Minister's uh, things have been shredded, they or have. the former Prime Minister's. Three more points, and then we'll, everyone will sum up and give us their single measure to restore the reputation, and then we'll have a cup of tea. So, down here. Hi, it's John Purcell. Um, this has been brilliant, and I think everybody here really gets it. Uh, particularly to Steve and Joey, I'd like to know, what, talking about restoring the faith, uh, we're obviously going to need a general election. When that's going to be, or any other opinions as to when that might be, and uh, what the composition of Parliament, you know, Tory, Labour, Independent, Lib Dem, whatever, is going to be at the end of it. And uh, Jenny? Jenny Russell from The Guardian. Um, I wrote a blog on The Guardian website this morning saying it's not the moment suggested, but actually MPs pay um, should be but their allowances should be cut. And I fully anticipate the reaction I got, which is so far um, blog saying, um, get lost, you silly bitch, and get lost, you silly MPs. Um, but the point is, of course, that if you did raise MPs' pay something around 85 or 90,000, cut of at least £15,000 a year. And the fact remains that MPs do have to have a more difficult job than other people on £64,000 a year because you do have to be in your constituency in London. And if you're paying for it out of your own pocket, then that actually does make life difficult. You, do, you may indeed um, end up needing a couple of lavatory brushes. The point is that the rest of us shouldn't feel that we're paying for them individually. And I do get very uncomfortable about um, the hair shirt requirement for public service. I think if you're going to attract good people into politics, I just don't see how you can say to people, you've got to look forward to a lifetime which you're not going to earn more than £64,000 a year, which means that you're not going to be able to own a flat in London and have your kids living with you and also be in another place. I mean, I, I'm pretty certain that this is a room full of people um, who earn more than that and don't bear those responsibilities. And I think that our anger about this particular set of fiddles shouldn't lead us to start demanding um, a... Um, a kind of level of um, public MPs which is simply unrealistic and we don't ask for anyone else and if we just ask the public what people should be paid I can tell you they probably wouldn't sanction any of our salaries here in this room. Just on that in fact on the general election point I'd like just to ask everybody I mean who here on the panel supports the David Cameron campaign and now the Sun campaign for an immediate general election is that necessary and is that going to happen? Joey? I'm not allowed to support that or uh, be against it. I'd love to. Uh, I'd love to be involved in the election because it would be the first one I've been out on the uh, on the road for. So bring it on, as far as I'm concerned. But that's not a party political point. Steve, I think this is another example of where this debate could get pretty trivial and you know puny. I mean, this is. 
Is it trivial, though, yeah, to say yeah, should yeah. there be a general election well, well, in these times? Is yes. that trivial? Yeah, I think it is because, um, well, Dave, I don't blame David Cameron for doing it. It's his job as leader of the opposition when you're 20 points ahead in the polls to call for an election. <laughs> um, it might just be that you are the beneficiary of that um, uh, outcome. But I think it's, it's again, it's, it's like, you know, sh who, who can we crucify next? Um, it, it's, it's a side issue compared to these other things. Um, and actually, my worry would be, if there was an election over the next month, you would get a lot of independence, you would get the minority parties doing well, and all the big issues, um, as well as the one we've been talking about this afternoon, are virtually ignored in a sort of political constitutional crisis type election. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not one for an early election. Oh, can I just ask Jonathan, because obviously he'll have watched um, PMQs as, as I did. I must say, David Cameron banging on about an election today was the most sterile that I've seen him for a long time, and it was very one-dimensional. I think that's slightly harsh. I thought he did quite well today. I, th I think what David Cameron is doing is tapping in to a public mood that, you know, something's got to happen, and actually having an election, having a clear-out, would be something that a lot of people would be very keen to do quite quickly. Um, I, mean, I, I agree with Steve that it's, it's something of a political manoeuvre to call for it because he also knows damn well that Gordon Brown isn't going to call one. Um, you know, it's not going to happen until, until May the 6th, I think it's May the 6th next year. Um, you know, Gordon Brown's going to drag it out for as long as possible because of the situation we're in now is a pretty similar situation to where we were in the summer of, what, 1996. You know, the government's on its knees, lost public confidence, everyone knows it's going to get voted out and it's just waiting to be put out of its agony, but the Prime Minister is kind of dragging it out, wishing for a miracle that this isn't going to happen. Norman, is well, there, isn't there? At the early general election? Yes. Well, there won't be an immediate one because, uh, well, first of all, Gordon Brown's not going to call it and David Cameron did look a bit opportunistic today, I have to say. But uh, it's also the point that if you want to... If, you want, if the public want to punish individual MPs, if that's what their mantra is, and I agree with Steve there are bigger issues now, but if that's what people are focused on, some of them at least, then we don't actually know who's guilty yet because the receipts haven't been published, the dust hasn't settled. So even on that issue alone, you have to wait till the autumn, I think, until you can see where matters are. And I think the appropriate time for an election is probably in the autumn. What will the composition be when some, somebody asked that question? Uh, the composition, I think, given that the Tories have got fewer seats than Michael Foote had in uh, 1983, given that there's a bigger third party presence, and I include in that not just the Lib Dems, but all the nationalists and everybody else, he has cephalogically got such a mountain to climb that I don't think he can do it. Still north of Birmingham, the Tories are a poison brand. I mean, people in Manchester Liverpool wouldn't dream of voting Conservative. They might have done in 1987 and 1992, but they won't do now. So I think if there were an election, even next year, we'll end up with uh, a position where neither Labour or Tory have, has a majority. Are you saying there's going to be a hung parliament? I am going to say that, yeah. That's but my you would firm... say that, wouldn't you? No, no, I wouldn't. I, I'm, I'm happy to make firm predictions. I did say that uh, yesterday, or the day before, Michael Martin wouldn't last a week. So I think I was, I was right on that one. I'll make a prediction now there'll be a hung parliament. He's not only rebelling, he's going into punditry as well. Helena, <laughs> very quickly about the election, then two more points, yeah. and then I'm afraid we must I, I, finish. I don't believe there will be an election before May of next year. I, I think that the Prime Minister will want to hang on in. And I actually um, welcome that, because I think that if we are talking about the kind of reforms that we've been talking about today, then it's going to take... It, it, you really need time to try to put those things in place, to get them sort of embedded in people's uh, uh, heads and actually to win the argument. So I don't think there will be an election before then, and I don't want there to be an election before then. And uh, as to the outcome, who knows?
Okay, well, just prepare yourselves with your one or two tips for the top on uh, reform and uh, salvaging the reputation while I take one point at the back and then one point at the front. Tell us who you are for those who don't know you. Member of Parliament, uh, which has been claimed by all but one of the members of the Shadow Cabinet. In the Pendle constituency of Gordon Prentice, uh, Ashcroft money of a quarter of a million is being spent in between the elections, a quarter of a million. In uh, a Gwent constituency, a, a former editor as an MP was just telling me that the last 14 uh, press releases he sent to his local paper, none of them have been printed. They're all very newsworthy. The, if the communications alliance was being used by MPs to tell their constituents how wonderful they are, uh, those uh, messages would not be read. But they are being used uh, to give some visibility uh, to MPs who are being blocked out of the system by uh, malign editors or by the, the tsunami of the Ashcroft money. Thank you. And one final quick point at the front. Peter York, I'm not a member of the political class, but I began to wonder about myself because when I read about these things, I'd only got an intimation from the Conway story, which was where it all started. I started thinking, well, I'm, I'm very unshocked. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised at the detail, which was delicious, rather like an air crash with things spread out over a mile, all of them very human and very hard scrabble stuff, but not, but small beer, all of it small beer, except in terms of people's expectations. So the, the answer to when will the reputation of politics be restored, it's a case, it's a, a special case of how the other half live and knowing how the other half live. And for, for the most part, people don't. Again and again, we see that people don't. And when they learn how the other half live, they're very, very surprised and rather shocked by it. And if you're a member of that other half, even vaguely a member of that better, luckier half, you're not at all surprised. You may be, I mean, the detail may be unpleasing, silly, but you're not at all surprised because you know that 100,000 is um, the national average wage except for the other people. That's what people know in big London, and you have always to remember it. And It'll be restored when people, A, know about that and either come to terms with it or do something about it. And I ask on a constant basis why it is when the private sector and the private sector's rewards are under such a potential scrutiny, because clearly there are big scandals there, that it becomes obligatory in certain bits of media land to attack the public sector, even though this is all venal and ridiculous um, uh, and so on. Incidentally, I learnt this morning, I think from the Today programme, that it was Bob Mellish. Can't you just see it? It's all right, lads. Your wages won't go up, but there's a lovely, lovely set of perks get stuck in. <laughs> Joey, on that note about... Troughs. Is there going to be an end to the troughing and is that what will restore political reputations or is it irrecoverable as you think it might be? Well, I just thought I might f finish by just um, uh, 
telling people something that happened a, a couple of weeks ago that I think shows the attitude that obviously needs to change. I mean, attitudes can change, so you never know. But obviously the problem is, because of feeding into what Steve was saying about the need always to be seen to be on the sort of the strong side and the right side of the argument, it leads people to get themselves into all sorts of contortions and, uh, and the, the idea of uh, reform or of, uh, or of reaction becomes sort of infinitely malleable when you realise that actually you're losing an argument. A couple of weeks ago um, when uh, the Prime Minister was bringing forward those proposals after the YouTube uh, oration and um, he, uh, there was an amendment put forward by Sir George Young to put the whole thing off to Sir Christopher Kelly. Now, two days before that was due to be voted on, somebody who was speaking to me, the Prime Minister's will, said that the people who uh, voted behind Sir George Young would be, quote, the forces of reaction in the House of Commons. Two days later, Gordon Brown and the rest of the government trooped into the lobby behind Sir George Young. I think, obviously, that shows the extent of people which uh, are able to contort themselves into... Uh, uncomfortable positions and until uh, that sort of thing changes then obviously we will be in a difficult situation. Thank you. Steve, parting shot. Uh, I agree with Jenny and uh, Peter that there's a kind of Monty Python sketch forming here about the hair shirt thing of MPs. You know, you can be an MP but don't expect to earn any money and you'll only be allowed to do it for two terms so if you enjoy it, forget it. It's not going to last for very long. I mean, who do we want? You know, we want in the end really good uh, people to come in and be legislators and so um, I think that needs to be acknowledged in terms of the amount they, they, they earn and just uh, more broadly it's now in Gordon Brown's self-interest to become a daring constitutional reformer and if I were advising him I'd tell him to bring in Helena and a couple of others to advise him to be really daring he's got nothing to lose but as no one seems to be advising him at the moment I doubt it will happen but um, that's what um, that's what he should be thinking of doing he's got absolutely nothing to lose by going really big on this Jonathan um, Any impressions before you want um, to match funds, Steve? What's your passing shot for us? Um, I was simply going to respond to Paul. I, I won't get into the going into the whole issue of Ashcroft money over again. I think you know, people should be free to give money to which parties they want. But I do agree with Paul, having watched him on television last night, that the ideal choice to be Speaker of the House of Commons would be John Burko, a very independent-minded Conservative parliamentarian, someone who most of my Tory friends no longer particularly approve of. Um, but uh, I think that he'd, he'd be a really interesting choice, and, and uh, I'm, I'm supporting him. Norman. Well, well tribalism has broken down in the sense that the Tories appear to want Frank Field and the Labour Party appears to want John Burko. So we're in a rather odd situation. Um, we've, had, um, we've had the trough, and now I think we should aim for the peak, and I think we can probably, we can probably get there. Uh, and I think the keys to this are, first of all, a sense of proportion. Secondly, transparency, because transparency is usually the answer to most things. And thirdly, external audit. And if we have those sorts of building blocks in place, then we'll get a much better system than we presently got at the moment. Who, who do you want to be speaker? Someone, someone, who's, someone who's radical, someone who's independent, someone who can stand up to all three parties, and mostly someone who can rebalance uh, uh, the, uh, the power base away from the executive and towards parliament. Helena. 
Um, I, I would go for John Berker. I, I actually, uh, I mean, from the people I've seen so far being pushed forward, he's the one who I feel is most likely to be radical, um, is prepared to think outside of the box and all of that. And so that, that's who I would support for it. Um, I was very interested in Paul's uh, thing about um, what's happening in different constituencies and, and the, 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 the Ashcroft money factor. I feel very, very strongly about the fact that um, in the House of Lords there are people who are non-DOMs, and Ashcroft is one of them. Yeah. A person who is there, who is legislating on, on the nation's, uh, you know, about, the, about so many issues, and who doesn't pay his tax in this country. It is unacceptable. And I supported a bill that was going through the House on it, and when I said to our, my own front bench, why are we not supporting this? Um, it was whispered to me that there might be problems with folk on my own benches. So, I mean, you know, this is, this is about around the House, and it's and, and I think it's a disgrace, and it's another of the reasons why you have to have reform of the upper house. It's a, totally awful. Anyway, but on the business of this generality, I really do think this is a moment to be seized, and I and I and I and I think it's for all parties to put their minds to this, and I and I think it's for you know David Cameron should also be putting his mind to it, as well as Gordon Brown. It really is a moment to be bold about how we can make the architecture of our democracy um, work much more effectively. And of course, it will take beyond this one year, but you start that process and you go for some key plum things that will restore people's confidence. Thank you. Well it, uh, it's ridiculous to try and sum it all up except that everyone seems to agree it's messy and everyone seems to agree there is movement of some kind but where it will lead we do not know. I'd like to thank Sky News for partnering with us Editorial Intelligence on this. I'd particularly like to thank the panel Joey, Steve, Jonathan, Norman and Helena and of course yourselves for taking part so thank you.